The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. is Jesus hates religious legalism. That's the title. I'll say that again. Jesus hates religious legalism. For some people, that's an alarming title. Jesus hates. The fact that I said the word hates is alarming to many people who think they know Jesus, but maybe they don't. They don't associate the word hate ever with Jesus. And I didn't make up the word. The word hate is actually in the text. Jesus hates religious legalism. And 11 verses 37 to 53. We'll see how far we get. We'll go for, oh, maybe enough time till we go about 12 o'clock and then we'll dismiss off to our seminar. And then we'll pick up definitely next week. There's just too much here in these verses to try to cover in one week. Not only is there too much information and detail to try to process and take in and study, but there are practical lessons flooding from this passage and in the ministry and the words of Jesus Christ that can be directly related to our lives today in the the interactions of the church and in the Christian life. Very practical, so we're going to see that. So we don't want to rush through it. And before we actually look at the text and before I read it, had some questions just to get us thinking. Question number one is, did you, you, don't answer out loud. Just answer in your own heart. See if you know the answer. Did Jesus ever get angry? Did Jesus ever get angry? It's a good question to think about. Well, the answer is yes. If you read the Bibles, uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's where you learn about Jesus what Jesus was like, what Jesus did, and what Jesus said and taught. By the way, outside of the New Testament, you won't find anything about, that's true about Jesus anywhere else in recorded history. It's original material. Oh, what about Josephus? Well, Josephus actually came and wrote after Jesus' ministry. He was a Jew. He lived in Palestine. and There's maybe just a couple of verses in his writings that echo the truths of the New Testament. He took it from the New Testament. That's where he got it, not original material. So I'll just say that again. There's nothing that's true and reliable history about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, or what he said, apart from the New Testament, the Bible. You can't find it anywhere. Other religious documents that supposedly have anything about Jesus Christ, they either made it up, it's fictitious, or they plagiarized the Bible, just to set the record straight. And what the Bible says about Jesus is absolutely true. It is historical. Not only that, without error, it is inspired by God, co-authored by God's servants and also the Spirit of God himself to ensure that what was recorded was recorded accurately in detail without error and then at the same time has been preserved by God for us for 2,000 years. So your Bible is completely reliable. Just a great reminder. We need to Be reminded of that as we go to Luke 11 and we hear the words of Jesus teaching. Jesus was not just a man. He wasn't just a rabbi, a do-gooder, or less than God, subordinate to God, a partial God. No, the God-man, God in the flesh, is the one that is speaking. So what he says is absolutely true, authoritative, and appropriate. I need to lay all that foundation and background in light of what happens in this passage. It's alarming. Which, going back to my question, did Jesus ever get angry? The answer is, yes, Jesus did get angry. By the way, when Jesus got angry, it was never sinful. It was righteous anger, holy anger, perfect anger, appropriate anger. Anger approved by God the Father, who is a God of wrath. And is wrathful and angry only about one thing, and that's Sin. So did Jesus get angry? Yes, he did. What made Jesus angry? There's your next question, number two. What made Jesus angry? You could summarize it all down to one thing. I just gave you the answer. Sin. Doesn't matter what context, who said it, what it is, if it's demons or people or incidents, the weather. When Jesus got angry, you can always trace it back. The origin of it was sin. 
Next question, number three. What, J what made Jesus most angry? There were gradations that you can trace of the anger of Jesus if you read the Gospels. Sometimes he got angry and he didn't vent it or verbalize it or show it. He said he got like perturbed within his soul or that kind of a thing or in his thought life. But then there were expressions of it, of his anger. Uh, and sometimes it was at full throttle, publicly displayed on a scale never seen before anywhere else in the Gospels. Because sometimes he got angry maybe with... Peter and James, just the group of the three. Sometimes he got angry with the 12. And it was mitigated with restraint in light of the comments that he made to him. But then there was just wholesale, unmitigated wrath and anger from the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, at a public level. And that's what we're dealing with today. So it is set apart. And the question is, what made Jesus most angry? Hopefully you've tried to answer that in your own mind by now. And I'll just, the simple answer is legalism, or you could say religious legalism. Not just legalism, because you, you can be a legalist and not be religious. It was religious legalism that Jesus got most angry with. And it's a specific kind of religious Legalism, I will call it biblical religious legalism, or you could say scriptural religious legalism. That's what made Jesus most angry. And we're going to see that in our text here. Scriptural, meaning the people that he got angry at supposedly knew scripture. They knew the Bible. In this case, it's the Old Testament scholars of his day, the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, the teachers of the Jews those of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers. They are the experts on the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, God's word. And they knew the Old Testament inside and out right here intellectually. But because they didn't have the proper relationship with God and the heart, proper heart attitude, they misunderstood, misinterpreted, and distorted God's holy word. Yet they still tried to practice it in keeping with their wrong and distorted view of Scripture. And the end result or the byproduct was legalism, living in a way that God never intended. And because they were leaders and had positions of authority, they were forcing that or foisting that upon the masses and normal people. That was who made Jesus the most angry. So we're going to see that. So what made Jesus most angry? What is, maybe you could say, what does God hate most? Well, from the testimony of Jesus Christ and his ministry, we could say, well, scriptural religious legalism. Then you could ask, and do we have that in the church today? Yeah, we've had that. We have it in the church today. It's been in the church for 2,000 years. It was in the early church. It was in the churches that... The 12 apostles, when they planted the churches, Peter in the book of Acts, and then Paul, he went up to plant churches and preached the gospel, started churches, and then lo and behold, it's just human nature that legalism, biblical religious legalism, would creep in like, like termites, like roaches, like an infestation of bugs you can't get rid of. That's religious legalism. It will always be with us. And that's true for 2,000 years of history. It was true in the days of the apostles when they started their churches, planted their churches, pastored their churches. So you could say in addition to Jesus, what made Jesus most angry? It was scriptural religious legalism. You could also say that about the apostle Paul and his ministry. Did Paul ever get angry? Yeah. And again, there were like levels and hierarchies and gradations of Paul's uh, angry that you could read in his epistles as he interacted with the churches that he planted and pastored. He had joy about certain things, but there are other things that frustrated him, and he communicated that. When they were sinning or doing uh, foolish things, and he would reprimand them or exhort them or warn them that he's, that he's coming to straighten things out, like with the Corinthians. But if you gauge that and saw, well, what made Paul most mad with the churches that he wrote letters to? It was the same thing. It was legalism, religious legalism, scriptural, biblical religious legalism. The evidence of that would be the book of Galatians. 
where he starts out the book. He planted the church in Galatia. He was their pastor. He raised up leadership. He gave them doctrine. He left to go plant other churches. He was away for a while. He heard bad news about the church that he had planted. He planted it based on the gospel, the free gospel of Jesus Christ. The salvation was by grace, through faith, apart from works, solely the work of Jesus Christ, not any human man. That's how that church was founded and began to grow. And yet it became compromised with scriptural religious legalism began to infest it and overcome true Christians. And Paul heard about it, wrote back, and in the very beginning of the epistle, grace and peace to you, in chapter 3, he's saying, you foolish Galatians! Exclamation point. That's a quote. And then his ire even grows even more and culminates in chapter 6. He is furious over religious legalism. So this is consistent between the apostle Paul and Jesus so we should take note of that. There's a practical lesson to take away. If there's anything that uh, infuriates us, frustrates us, uh, raises the red flag, it should be so-called biblical or Christian or scriptural religious legalism. It is in the church today. It's been in the church for 2,000 years. It's here at CBC, Creekside Bible Church. And its carriers are individuals. Always. People. So because it is in our midst, it's something we need to continue to guard against. It will always be with us. We need to know what it is. We need to diagnose it, define it, prevent against it, speak publicly about it, give remedies to overcome it. And that's going to be the benefit of this passage, the example and the model of Jesus Christ. He helps us do that here, and he's, we're going to be able to glean practical principles uh, that we can use in our own life. So that's just a little bit about religious legalism. Let me define religious legalism up front, just a simple definition, just to give us some clarity because we're going to be talking about it uh, for the next two sermons is a definition of legalism. It's real simple, actually. Um, Legalism is just simply trying to please God by performance. Trying to please God by performance. That's, legal, that's religious legalism. Trying to please God by, you could say instead of performance, you could say human works. Trying to earn God's favor by your performance, by things you do. That's legalism. We don't please God by things we do in terms of earning his merit or earning forgiveness of sin or earning salvation. We do please God when we're obedient. So there is a distinction there. If you're a child of God, you love Jesus Christ, one of the evidences and the fruit of the fact that you are truly born again and that you love God is that you will obey him. Jesus said that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you're a Christian, you can love God by fulfilling and being obedient. If you're not a Christian, you can't do that. So legalism is trying to earn God's love through performance or works. usually when you claim to be a believer or a Christian. Or another way to define legalism is living by laws. Living by laws. Practically, what does that look like? The do's and don'ts. Paul talks about that in Colossians chapter 2. He says, no, don't, that's, don't do that. That's legalism. The do's and don'ts. That's not pure and true religion. It's pseudo-religion. Easy to do, by the way. Legalism is easy to do. Got your little checklist, black and white, finite, clear as a bell. Oh, I did that. Check. Ah, did that. Check. Uh, gave my 10%. Check. Went to church. Check. Brought dessert for the fellowship meal. Check. Had devotions for 15 minutes. Check. As though this pleases God, or you're earning his favor, or he looks down and says, wow, that's impressive. That's legalism. Living by do's and don'ts. So trying to please God for performance, as opposed to uh, pleasing God by uh, an overflowing heart of love towards God out of his grace by which he saved us through his mercy, having nothing to do with our own efforts. And 
obeying God from the heart is much more difficult than obeying God according to legalistic laws of do's and don'ts. So true religion is obeying from the heart. Legalism is obeying from sheer performance and outward works. Uh, and it's living by laws. And it's kind of interesting the way this is manifest. Legalism is living by laws, do's and don'ts. And it can be uh, biblical laws, laws that are actually in the Bible. Like the Ten Commandments. Ask the average person on the street usually. So do you believe in the Ten Commandments? A lot of people say, yeah. Do you do the Ten Commandments? Yeah. Should we be doing the Ten Commandments? Yeah. Does doing the Ten Commandments earn God's faith? Oh, Absolutely. No. Those are true laws. They reflect God's character. They're perfect. They're holy, but they were not given to us to earn God's favor. So you can actually become a legalist by using true, legitimate biblical laws the wrong way. Or you can uh, also be a legalist by obeying laws that you take a biblical law and you distort its meaning and, meaning and you apply it a wrong way. For example, when uh, in Deuteronomy 6, God is reminding the Israelites of what true religion is in Deuteronomy 6, 4. And he gives that great Shema that the Lord our God, he is one. And then the next verse he says the great commandment, which is lo love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Heart, mind, soul. Those three are from the inner man. That is not external performance. That's true religion. It's from the heart. And then a few verses later, he says, Now, in bind, so to remember these priorities in the great truth of true religion and loving God from the heart, remind yourself with signs. Bind them as signs or reminders on your hand and on the frontals of your forehead. That's a command in Deuteronomy 6. And it's a metaphor, that's all. But then the Pharisees, the legalists, they took that. Literally, they took a true biblical law and they twisted it and applied it the wrong way. And they literally built these little boxes called phylacteries and they strapped them to their forehead so they looked like a unicorn walking around with this big old box on their head with a Bible verse written on it in there. And then they took a big old piece of leather, whatever, wrapping it on the, they're all the way up their forearm in the shape of one of the Hebrew letters that represents something spiritual out of Deuteronomy, walking around like this. Looking ridiculous, thinking they're fulfilling a biblical law in Deuteronomy 6. So that's what legalists do. They uh, live by law, whether it's a true biblical law or whether it's a biblical law that they completely distort and give the wrong meaning. Or typically legalism is living by a man-made law. And they, t they make it spiritual and religious. And there's all kinds of those in the church today in church history. So, and that's another definition of legalism. What is legalism? L religious legalism is taking a man-made law and elevating it to the authority of biblical law. That's a great definition of legalism. Don't do this. Don't celebrate Easter. Don't answer the door at Halloween. Tell the kids to go home. They're from Satan. Blah, blah, blah. So legalism, what is it? Uh, many times it's when... Uh, humans, which we're accustomed to do, is we invent a law, we invent a rule, and then we elevate it to the authority of the Bible. We're going to see that in our passage here. That's what these legalists do. And at the same time, or many times, it supplants biblical laws, replaces or displaces biblical requirements from God, or denigrates the Bible and biblical truth and biblical law. That's legalism. So we need to have a, a definition up front. So there it is. Let's go to Luke. <clears throat> and uh, you just see, so we are about Jesus' public ministry, probably about three and a half years by way of reminder. We saw that beginning in chapter uh, ten, 9 of Luke, for the rest of the end of Luke, Jesus is now, okay, he finished his public ministry in Galilee, and now for the next year or less, maybe nine months, from Luke 9 to the end of the book, Jesus is on, he, he sets his face towards Jerusalem because he knows that's where he's going to die. He knows that from the Old Testament. It predicted the Messiah would die and be crucified. And he knows that's why he was born. So for the next nine months, he's going to be on this slow, deliberate tr trudge to Jerusalem, going in and out, 
leaving Galilee, crossing over the Jordan River at times, going into the ten cities of the Decapolis, uh, bypassing Samaria, going down to Jerusalem, or really physically up to Jerusalem, but on your map going south to Jerusalem. And then he'll go out of the Decapolis area, and then he'll go to a region called Perea on the east side of the Jordan River, do some ministry there, going, and then going back and forth across the Jordan, strategically picking houses where he could go and meet new friends or be safe until the time comes on that Passover when he would give his life in fulfillment of Scripture. So that's what's going on. So no longer is he about training the masses and the crowds. He, he is focused, and he's headed to the cross. Meanwhile, in parallel is the hatred of the scribes and the Pharisees of the leadership of the Jews is escalating all the more throughout the Gospel of Luke towards the end. The last six to nine months of Jesus' life, we're going to see that. He just keeps butting into the Jewish leaders, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees, and head to head. And he actually many times is trying to avoid them because he doesn't want a premature death. He knows when he has to die. But we're going to see this increase of their hostility and hatred towards Jesus. And also, the third thing that's happening is in addition to Jesus deliberately going to Jerusalem to die, the second thing, this growing antagonism with his enemies who would eventually kill him, and then the third thing is this focus on his private ministry with his 12 apostles to prepare them for planting the church, the first church. That's the overall theme. So that brings us to Luke 11. So it's been a while since so we're in Luke 11, just some of the last things that happened there. Um, he taught them again the Lord's Prayer, since spent some time at Mary and Martha's house. Uh, he had a run-in with uh, some Pharisees in chapter 11, verse 14. Just by way of reminder, what happened there, it's the same chapter, it's about the same time. Uh, verse 14 of chapter 11, Jesus was casting out a demon. Well, that's, you would think that's a good thing, right? Casting out a demon, and it was... Mute, couldn't talk, and when the demon had gone out, the mute man who was demon-possessed began to speak, and the crowds were awed. They were amazed. But some of them, you know who that is? That would be the Jewish leadership. That's the scribes and the Pharisees. They were plants, strategic plants in the crowds and in the masses. There were throngs of people following Jesus now for probably the last year and a half everywhere he went. And the entire time, uh, the Sadducees, Pharisees, and scribes, they always had their strategizing, and they had the plants hidden in the crowds. And anytime Jesus is teaching publicly, speaking publicly, doing a public miracle, inevitably one of these scribes or Pharisees uh, shouts out of the crowd to make it look like the whole crowd is antagonistic to Jesus and rebellious. They're trying to incite antagonism against Jesus. It was strategic, and that's what's going on here. Verse 15, some of them, Jesus does a miracle, everybody's amazed, many are celebrating, and yet some of them, that's the Jewish leadership, Said or shouted out, he cast out demons by the devil. So all the people that are celebrating are like, oh. Oh, not celebration, but suspicion. Oh. Can you believe, what an accusation. The sinless, holy son of God and the leadership, the Jews who should know better, or accusing Jesus of being a follower of Satan. And that's where he gets his power. That was recent. That's one of the last things that they said about him. You're satanic. That's the Jewish leadership. Um, then in chapter 11, verse 29, as the crowds were increasing, growing more and more, as Jesus continues to do his ministry, he began to say, this, this is after doing two plus years of ministry with the masses and having to go head to head time and time again with the Jewish leadership, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, Jesus finally, publicly, formally pronounces their condemnation. That's 1129. With about nine months to go in his ministry, and he began, to, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation, an evil generation. By generation, he's specifically talking about the Jewish leadership of that day. They're wicked. They are evil. So you can see, and this is a public statement, you can see, uh, there is tension rising. There's hostility so thick in the air you could cut it with a knife. Between Jesus, who's a Jewish rabbi, and the leadership of Israel. So that's the context that recently happened. 
Uh, Jesus goes on and gives more teaching, talking about the Son of Man. He condemns uh, the leadership, basically, of Israel. So in the crowd, there are Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, lawyers, Herodians. They're all hearing this. And so now we pick up our passage here, verse 37. Again, it's a public setting. Masses of people, all kinds of crowds. People can hear this. This isn't a private conversation uh, that happened prior to verse 37. That all happened publicly. Then in verse 37, there's a transit. Now, when he had spoken all these things, a Pharisee, a pure one, that's what their word means, the separate ones, the pure ones, uh, these are the people that the, the masses looked up to, regular old Jews, who wanted, they loved Yahweh and they wanted to be obedient and they wanted to do what God required in the Mosaic law, but they felt compelled, they, well, we've got to listen to the Pharisees because they're in charge, they know more than we do. The Pharisees along with the scribes, the scholars of the Old Testament, they, they know the law, the Bible better than we do. So we must follow and obey them. We, we must respect them. We must honor them. So they had the authority. They also uh, had wealth and esteem and status and power and those other things that they wielded over the masses and the people. So they could manipulate the people. The people feared the Pharisees, religious leaders. It was an oligarchy. So now when Jesus had said these things, a Pharisee asked him, now up to this point for the last two years, the Pharisees have not been friends of Jesus. We know this. Remember John the Baptist who came to prepare the way, the ministry of Jesus? John the Baptist, prepare ye the way of the Lord. The kingdom is at hand. Behold the Son of God, and he pointed to Jesus. Get baptized. Repent of your sin. Identify with the kingdom by identifying with Jesus of Nazareth. And then you get baptized by John, and when you did that, you were identified with the ministry of Jesus, which was the ministry of the Old Testament, which was true religion in Israel. Well, then who should be the first people in line to get baptized by the ministry of John the Baptist? Well, the leaders of the Jewish religion, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Pharisees. And according to the Bible, the Pharisees refused to get baptized by John. Refused to. Nope, ain't going to do it. They boycott the ministry of John the Baptist. Because they were suspicious of Jesus, they didn't want to be affiliated with this Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because he wasn't trained in their rabbinical schools down in their synagogues down in Jerusalem and in Judah. He was a, he came, we don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went to school. He's a Nazarene. He grew up in Nazareth? That's not in the Old Testament anywhere, the Messiah or some respectable Bible teacher would come from Nazareth. So they had zero respect for him, didn't know who he was. He spoke in a different way. He taught in a different way. His demeanor was completely, totally different than theirs. His complete outsider. He wasn't in their little clique or their club. They wanted nothing to do with him from day one. Which reminds me of an important question. We know that Jesus died. He died purposely. Jesus was born to die. That's the one thing... For whatever reason, for 18 years as a Catholic, I didn't know that until I was 19 years old and read the Bible. I wasn't taught the Bible as a Catholic. But for me, personally, I didn't know until I read the Bible. It's like, oh, wow, Uh, Jesus dying was not a mistake. Jesus dying was not a coincidence. Jesus dying was not something Jesus was trying to avoid. And all these years, for 18 years, I'm feeling sorry for him as a helpless victim. I missed the boat on that. That is not the story of the Bible. Jesus came to die on purpose. That was his one mission. To die to absorb the wrath of Almighty, Holy God the Father on his body, his being, his person, on the cross as the perfect substitute for us sinners of all who would identify with Jesus as our substitute. Repent of our sin knowing that we, we needed forgiveness to be adopted into the family of God. We couldn't do it by our own works. It had to be by God's grace and his mercy, his way, his plan. And that was through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is true salvation. And that's why Jesus came. He came to die in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So that's just a basic truth uh, that I never lear- uh, learned about Jesus Christ. And that's true of many people who think they know about Jesus. And here we're going to see truths about Jesus. So let's just go ahead and pick up at verse 37. I just want to read the passage. So now when Jesus had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. 
hey, that seems nice. And he went in, so he agreed to have uh, lunch with this Pharisee. So Jesus went with the Pharisee and had lunch, and he reclined. Now, at the table should not be in your text there, because it's not in the Greek text. When you ate in those days, routinely you laid on the ground. And then you had pillows. You didn't have chairs many times, at least to sit on at a dinner. So they're reclining, literally, laying on the ground, pillows, maybe in a circle or semicircle was typical. So Jesus agrees to this lunch. Uh, they're reclining. Verse 38, and when the Pharisees, so they sit down for lunch, they're getting ready to eat. They probably uh, serve the food. They start eating, and verse 38 says, and when the Pharisee uh, saw it, he was surprised that Jesus had not first ceremonially washed his hands before the meal. But the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, now keep in mind, Jesus is a guest at this lunch. This is somebody else's house, somebody else's lunch, somebody else's labor that planned and prepared this. Keep that in mind. I mean, just imagine yourself going to somebody else. You get invited after church to go to somebody's house for lunch. Oh, yeah, great. And then you go there, you sit down, and the first thing out of the gate is you're criticizing your host. Because that's what's going on here. So they sit down, about ready to eat. Um, But the Lord Jesus said to the Pharisee, Now, you Pharisees, plural, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, verse 40, did not he who made, that's God, the outside, make the inside also, but, but give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. Verse 42, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe, a tenth of mint of your herbs and of your rue, which is another herb, and of every kind of garden herb, and yet you disregard justice and the love of God. But these things are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. That's how lunch opened up. Three woes. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you. Woe to you. You are condemned of God. Damn you. That is what it means. Damned to hell is literally what it means. That's a woe. Well, there's a group of them. By the way, Pharisees, Pharisees, when you see it in the New Testament, usually it's plural, almost always. Almost always. Because that's how they, they were like a pack of hyenas. They always traveled as a group for a lot of reasons. And Jesus has been invited to a meal before by a Pharisee. We saw that earlier in Luke. I won't go back there, but in Luke chapter 7, a Pharisee invited him to a meal, and Jesus went to that meal, and that didn't go well either. Jesus insulted that host. His name was Simon. You would have think that these Pharisees would have got word, whoa, man, don't invite Jesus to lunch or dinner. He'll spoil the meal. He'll insult you at your own house in front of all your friends and family. Good luck. Well, that's what this Pharisee did. So they're sitting around. There's plenty of people at this, you know, probably a plurality of Pharisees since they traveled in packs. They're little cliques. By the way, the word heresy in the New Testament, it doesn't mean false teaching. What does it mean? Well, you find it in the book of Acts. It means a faction of people. A clique. It's got a negative overtone to it. Little clicks, like in Corinth, the little clicks. You got this click of Paul and this click of uh, Peter and this click of Apollos and the click of Jesus, and uh, that's a heresy. So a heresy is a small click. It's, it's dividing the body of Christ is what it does. So what do little clicks do? They divide. They break up harmony and unity. They're divisive. That's a her- What does heresy mean? It means to be divisive socially by your little click. You're an isolationist. You don't want anybody else in your little club. Heresy. We know the truth. We got the corner on the truth. Very narrow-minded, myopic. They look down their nose at other people. You're not, you're not good enough to be in our little clique. So that's what heresy means. And actually, in the book of Acts, it refers to the heresy 
of the Pharisees. That just means the little group, the, the clique, the, the divisive little clique. Now, then metaphorically over time, that was used. What, what are heresies? They're divisive cliques. And what do people who teach false teaching do in the church? Well, they're usually isolated. They're by themselves. They uh, accumulate those who will follow them strategically and kind of secretly their own little club. And they teach wrong teaching, and that wrong teaching becomes divisive in the body of Christ. And that's why heresy over time became attached with false teaching. Because false teaching always divides God's people, always. So that's just a little history about these little factions, the Pharisees. Um, so they're sitting around this meal. There's plenty of people there. Jesus just disrupted this thing. They, they are in shock. Uh, there's, so you've got the Pharisees there. But you also have, with the Pharisees, you usually have the lawyers in verse 45. That's verse 45. One of the lawyers said to Jesus in reply, teacher, and that's not uh, recognizing Jesus as a teacher, but not rec recognizing him as an authoritative rabbi. Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. There's scribes here. You, you hurt our feelings. Why? Because scribes and Pharisees always go together. They're in cahoots. They're dependent upon each other. Verse 46, and, by, and some of the Pharisees uh, were scribes, or some of the scribes were Pharisees. Verse 46, uh, but Jesus said, well, woe to you. Well, I'll give you some too. Woe to you, lawyers, scribes as well. For you weigh men down, you weigh people down, you weigh people who want to obey Yahweh. You weigh people down with your burdens, your religious burdens that are hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens that you foist on other people with one of your fingers. Woe to you, scribes, lawyers, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed the prophets. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God has said, I will send to them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and some of them they will persecute. That's a prophecy Jesus just gave about what's going to happen to his apostles when he sends them out. Verse 50, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation against you, the Jewish leadership. From the blood of Abel, way back in Genesis chapter 4, to the blood of Zechariah, all the way at the end of the Old Testament in Second Chronicles chapter 24 in your Hebrew Bible, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, scribes and lawyers. So he gives three woes to the Pharisees and then three woes to the scribes. And you have taken away the key of knowledge. They had authority. They had religious authority. They had power. They had authority over the meaning and interpretation of the Old Testament to the masses. They have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter into the kingdom. And you hindered those who were trying to enter as in the kingdom of God. Verse 53, when he left there, we don't even know if he got to eat. When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, really continuing to plot against him to catch him in something he might say. Wow. So that's why the reason I wanted to ask that question, did Jesus ever get angry? There's a lot of people who have this this. I guess a character of their understanding of who Jesus is when actually they've never read the Bible or haven't read it very carefully or read the Gospels. Because when you read the Gospels, uh, what we just read might be shocking to a lot of people that, wow, did Jesus really talk that way? Isn't that rude when you go to somebody's house for dinner and you just start insulting them out of the gate? Should we do that? No, we shouldn't because we're not God. We're not perfect. We are not sinless. We are not omniscient. Jesus was God and is God. It's his prerogative. So we can't model everything Jesus did, but that'd be impossible, and it would be wrong. But this is true Jesus. So uh, I want to read, before I keep going, I, I want to read this passage in Matthew 23, just kind of to remind us that this is not an exception of Jesus and his ministry that we read in the Gospels and in his life. <clears throat> we we got to get to know who the real Jesus is. Pastor Cliff, this doesn't sound like a warm and fuzzy message. No, it's not. I'm just reading the Bible. We're going to go through the whole book of Luke, chapter 1 to 24, and we aren't going to skip anything, and we're just going to tell it like it is because that's what God intends. He wants us to know the full counsel of God, who Jesus really was. 
Well, this is hard truth. Yeah, we need to hear it. We need to add this to our Christian worldview, to how we view the world and how we view people and how we view God and how we view sin and how we view holiness, how we view ourselves. This absolutely is an ingredient that cannot be missing. The, the true teaching of Jesus Christ and his three-and-a-half-year ministry was riddled with hostility from his enemies. And Jesus had enemies because he spoke the truth. Those who aren't believers, they hate truth. They hate the light. That's the word Jesus used in John chapter 3. You get the warm and fuzzy verse in John 3, 16, and that really mean and scary verse in chapter 3, 18 and 19. So if you're committed to truth, you will have enemies. If you teach the truth and, expose, and proclaim the truth and expose error, you will always have enemies at the highest level of hostility. And that was true of Jesus. So look at Matthew 23. This is on a different occasion, but it's a parallel passage, and it gives us a little background about these, how these scribes and uh, Pharisees that he's condemning here operated. And Jesus has been dealing with them since the beginning of his ministry. Uh, Matthew 23, this is the end of his ministry. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds, the masses, and, and his disciples, probably the 12 apostles, saying this. This is public. By the way, scribes and Pharisees are in the crowd listening. Scribes and Pharisees may have been in the front row, spitting range of when Jesus said this. We know that for a fact. Then Jesus said to everybody, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They have taken authority of religion in the land of Israel. Really what they've done is they've usurped religious authority. They're imposters. They're phonies. They're dangerous. Verse 3, Therefore all that they tell you, do and observe. When they tell you accurately what the Bible says, then do it out of Moses. But do not do according to their deeds, because they're hypocrites, they're compromisers. For they say things and they don't do them. That's a hypocrite. Verse 4, the scribes and the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders, religious burdens, false religion. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with not as much as a finger, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. There it is. It's a publicity stunt. They do all their deeds, all of their religion to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments on their holy robes. They love the place of honor at banquets, religious banquets, and the chief seats in the synagogues. You know what, what those were? In the synagogue? We know this for a fact. There was like the podium where the word of God was proclaimed and taught, and then there was a semicircle of chairs up here behind, facing the congregation. The, you know, the normal people, the Lilliputians, like you out there? And the, the holy and the esteemed and the authoritative and the pure ones, they were up here on stage, facing, looking down on normal people. Boy, that's, they just conspired and aspired to those seats. Boy, I want to sit up there someday. I want that status. I want people to see me and recognize me. That's what he's talking about. They, they vied for those seats in the synagogues. Uh, they loved those places of honor, verse 7, and respectful greetings in the marketplaces publicly and, and being called rabbi, teacher, authoritative teacher by men. Don't call me Frank, call me rabbi. Verse 8, but do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, that's God, Jesus, and you're all brothers. You're all equal spiritually before God. Pathetic sinners saved by grace. Verse 9. Do not call anyone on earth your father, your religious father, your spiritual father, your holy father. Kind of like what does the Pope demand he be called? Father. Holy father. Don't do that. Jesus said that. That's false religion. Don't call anybody your spiritual father. There's only one father who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders. For one is your leader, your ultimate leader, one senior pastor, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So he, just, he said that little lesson to the masses about don't be hypocrites, don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. They are phony at religion. And then he turns his guns literally on the Pharisees and Sadducees who are in the audience with the crowds. And that's verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's a public declaration. Hypocrites. Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Jesus is not just talking softly. He's talking loud. He's addressing mass, massive crowds of people. This is at the top of his lungs. He is shouting this. 
We need to get this in our brain. This is shocking. This is alarming. Nobody ever talked to the scribes and Pharisees like this until Jesus came along. What do you scribes and Pharisees? You hypocrites for the second time because you travel around on sea and land to make one convert. And when he becomes one convert, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Jesus said that. Wow. Verse 16. But woe to you, blind guides. And then verse 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 24, you blind guides. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 26, you blind Pharisee. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 29, he's not done. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then he goes on. Wow. Scathing. Scathing. So this is a Jesus we need to... Welcome into our understanding, the sinless Son of God, creator, savior, and also judge, also holy judge. He's fully within his rightful prerogative to talk this way. He knows the hearts of men. God hates sin, and most of all, he hates hypocrisy that's trying to smother over and hide sin through religion. It's despicable, and there's zero tolerance for it from God's point of view and from Jesus' point of view. So let me close with this. This is all just kind of laying foundation. Uh, I remember one time I was, I was a new Christian, and so I'm reading the Bible for the first time in my life. I grew up with religion. Ironically, I grew up with external, hypocritical, legalistic, surface, false religion, scriptural religion. And then at 19, I'm reading the Bible for the first time, the Gospels, and I am just shocked on every page. Wow, I didn't know Jesus said this. Well, that doesn't seem nice. That seems kind of mean. I never heard this before. Is this really what Jesus was like? Yes. So I got saved, and then I read the whole Bible, and I read the Gospels. Like, man, this is, I need to totally adjust how I think about who Jesus is. And I, I need to get in line with reality, the Gospels. That's what God wants. And then I began to share the Gospel with family members, immediate family members. And for the most part, they categorically, wholesale, rejected everything I had to say. They preferred man-made religion. Why can't we just all get along? I started hearing, you're being divisive. I said, oh, okay. Well, do you believe in the Bible? Yes, because they claim to be, believe in the Bible, many of these family members. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Do you believe Jesus was the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe what Jesus taught in the Bible? Yes. Well, the problem is they actually hadn't read it. And I'll never forget, I was a brand new Christian. First year of my saved life, I'm at my, the old house that I grew up in. And I said, oh, okay, since you believe in Jesus and the Bible and what Jesus said and taught, can I read a passage of the Bible that Jesus said to you? And they, oh, yeah. And here's what I read. Uh, it's in Matthew 10. And Jesus said this, verse 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny that person before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I, Jesus, did not come to bring peace, but a sword, division. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and the one who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And then I finished reading, and then I looked up, and I'll never forget the words. Wow, that wasn't very nice. And those, those words are resonating in my brain 35 years later. And on the one hand, I was like, oh, praise God, they, they understood what it said. They got the meaning. They got it. But at the same time, it was heartbreaking. Because they, they claimed to be, believe in the Bible and Jesus, and they were unwilling to accept the truth. It was heartbreaking. Uh, and been praying for many of those family members to this day that they might be saved. Embrace the gospel and bow the knee 
to the true Lord Jesus Christ, the one represented in the Bible, who is indeed, yes, the creator with the Father and the Son. And yes, the blessed, wonderful Savior that offers forgiveness to anyone who repents of sin. And when they hear the gospel, they embrace that, believing that Jesus was their substitute on the cross. And, so, and cries out to God, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, when they pray that instantaneously. Born again, saved, adopted into the family of God, transferred from Satan's kingdom into God's kingdom. In the hand of the Father and Jesus Christ, eternally, forever, forgiven sin, eternal life. The Holy Spirit living in you a true child of God, apart from any works, but by grace through faith. That's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's our background, and I intentionally wanted to spend the time to, to do that because I knew that this passage is, is really challenging as we go through it, and it, it prompts a lot of questions in our thinking because this Jesus of the Bible is so contrary to the Jesus in culture, and many times the Jesus that's been presented throughout history and in the world. But we, we can trust in God's word as being true. Let's go to the Father in heaven and pray to the Father, the Spirit, and the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we do thank you for our time together. And thank you for the Lord's Day, as always, a time to gather with the saints, to worship you, to learn from you, to hear you speak through your word. Father, we do thank you that you do uh, use the Holy Spirit to teach your truth in Scripture so that we can understand your thoughts, your mind, your will for us. Uh, before us in your ministry is a difficult passage, a very challenging encounter that the Lord Jesus had with those who hated him. And yet, Lord Jesus, in your holiness and sovereignty and courage, you spoke forth truth to help us, to warn us that we would not be misled by false religion that comes so easily to us as humans as we're sh we are so short-sighted, prideful, and wanting to please you with our own efforts. We can't do that. So thank you for this warning. And God, we think of those who are close to us, family members, friends that don't know you yet. We've been praying for their salvation, softening of hearts, enlightenment of understanding. God, we want to continue to pray for them, that you would allow them to see the truth of the gospel, that they might be saved and embrace you as Savior. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.